I'll open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. We continue in our study of the beginnings. This morning we'll be looking at the 15th message so far through this um, narrative of the beginning of all things. And so we looked last week at half of a verse. (laughs) We won't do that again. The first part of verse 1 is where we looked at, as we began to look at the fall of man and through Adam's sin in the garden, the Bible declares that all of mankind has fallen with him, inheriting from him a sinful nature, a broken fellowship with God, a sinful disposition that would forever change our experience on this earth. We don't have anything to compare it to. We can look back at our pre-Christian lives and our current experience as a believer, and we can obviously see some differences, but I don't think we can grasp the severity of difference that existed in a time of innocence to what you and I experience in the best days of our lives now. Well, the fall of man brought catastrophic consequences to both the earth and to all its inhabitants. And chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, is a very simple explanation of what happened. And in it, we see a pattern for how the Lord God's adversary will seek to lead all of mankind astray. So in our outline, that is continuing from last week, we looked at the fall of man and the adversary. And what we read last week was, verse 1a, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So we explored this in depth, this aspect of the fall of man. We know the serpent is really Satan, the fallen angel Lucifer in his demonic role as the adversary of both God and man. As an angel of light, it would not be difficult for him to possess a serpent or to take upon himself the appearance of a serpent and therefore speak to Eve in the garden. There's a lot of questions that we can't really find answers for. Why was he allowed in the garden? Why didn't Adam come over with a shovel and beat him over the head when he got into the garden? There's just a lot of parts of this that we can't understand or explain because the Bible doesn't speak to them directly. We can only speculate. But we explored the passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah that describe for us the beauty of his creation, the way he was adorned, his role as a covering or as a protecting cherub, as well as his fall from heaven. We explored his ongoing work masquerading as an angel of light when in fact he is actually on a rampage to induce misery upon mankind. We see in the verses that follow the strategy of Satan and how he attempts to lead others astray. This is likely the internal process of his own decision to rebel against the rule of God and make himself to be his own God. It was really interesting when I was writing those words Later in my study, I found other commentators that gave thought to the same kind of thing, that this is potentially what we're going to see in in this passage, the, the train of thought that went through Lucifer as he admired himself, as he considered God's restrictions, of which we don't know of the angels, very much of the angels, and then that birthed within him the desire to go his own way. We don't know that, but it's just a speculation. So let's read together verses 1 through 7, and then we'll continue in our outline. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. 
The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with it, with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. What a small amount of space to describe such a catastrophic failure and impact on God's created world. Well, as we looked at the adversary, we turn our attention now to the dialogue that comes from the second part of verse 1 and following. And we see the dialogue here. He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So we see the first part of this dialogue begins with a question. The question that Satan is going to ask is the first one recorded in all of Scripture. And we see this as a part of Satan's integral strategy in leading us astray. The strategy, letter A, is to introduce doubt. Did God really say? Now, I can tell you this. I've had many, many, many conversations in my life. I have had many, many, many misunderstandings in my life. And I have often had to go back to people and say, you know, I'm so sorry, I misunderstood what you said. I didn't understand your intention. And because I have a hearing loss, I didn't hear accurately what you said. And so it's not uncommon for us to say, did God really say, or excuse me, for us to say, did you really say? But here the strategy of Satan is to question the very word of God. Did God really say? The very words of God which are responsible for all of creation... For all that Eve enjoys in the garden, its lush beauty, its plentiful food, its rivers flowing which nourish all of the earth, this question is calling into question the command of God himself. This is always paramount in Satan's strategy, and that is to question what God has said. But the question that he asks isn't to come to a better clarification or to get a more accurate understanding of what has been said, he asks this question for the purpose of introducing doubt into into Eve's mind. The question is very, very shrewd. Did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Well, is that what God said? Is that what God said? Well, he doesn't outright deny God's word here. He simply causes doubt of God's word. And the seed of disobedience is sown because she has and we have this idea that we have the ability to question what God has said. Not so much did I remember correctly. Let me go back and read that verse again. There was a singular command that was given to Adam, which was passed on to Eve. 
But what was it that God really said? So in asking Eve this seemingly innocent question, Satan masterfully puts the focus on the prohibition and not the provision. Think about that. Did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Is that what God said? Well, let's look at what God actually said. In chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So when God gave the command, the emphasis is on His generous provision. From any tree of the garden you may eat. In Satan's question, the emphasis is on the prohibition. You shall not eat. Creating the impression that God has boxed them in with restriction. Is that what God did? I mean, if if I said to you, you can sit in any chair in this auditorium that you would like, except that one right there in the middle. You can't sit in that chair. Wow, I can sit in any seat in this whole building. That would be a wonderful provision for me to come in and sit wherever I want. He focused on the one seat or the one tree that was off limits to them. So, boxing them in with, with restrictions. Satan's strategy was to portray God as narrow, strict, lacking any generosity, very restrictive, as if he wanted to limit human freedom and deprive Adam and Eve of enjoyment and pleasure. I said this way back. All of God's commands are either to provide or protect. It rings true here. This one command is designed to protect. But Satan has a way of making God's protection seem like it's a restriction, and it makes that restriction that much more desirable for us. So doubt opens the door just a crack, and sometimes that little crack is all it takes for that doubt to burst in and we find ourselves in a position that we never thought possible. Now what is interesting to note is that Satan knew what the command was. We don't know how he knew, but he knew what it was. Did God really say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? He knew the command. It was his intention to cast doubt on what was so clear and on what did not need any clarification. And yet as Eve hears that question, she goes, huh, what did God really say? Is that what God said? So it's also worth noting that in this dialogue, this is the only place in all of Genesis 3 and 4 where the covenant name for God, the Lord God, is not used. Satan refers to him as God, Elohim. Eve responds in like manner, calling upon God or Elohim, never mentioning the covenant name for God. Satan does not use the covenant name for God, and neither does Eve. So in response to this initial question, and as a result of the seed of doubt planted in Eve's mind, we see, as a part of this doubt, Eve's revisions. Now, there are three seemingly innocent or insignificant revisions to God's command, but each has a very significant negative impact. 
The first revision here is to minimize. It is to minimize God's command. Now, verse 2 says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. Now, it may seem like it's nitpicking, but what is it that Eve omits in reciting the command that God initially gave to Adam, which was passed on to her? Eve omits the generous provision of being able to freely eat from any tree of the garden. The restriction of the one tree was likely one in a thousand. We have no idea how many trees were in the garden, but we know that every tree was beautiful and good for food. But here, she omits the fact that God gave them provision to freely eat from every tree of the garden. She has minimized God's generous provision. Did she intend to do that? We don't know. It's the result of the doubt that has been sown in her by the serpent asking her this question. By not reciting exactly what God had said, Eve has allowed the door to be cracked open just a little bit further. She doesn't understand that Satan is using his shrewdness to lead her astray, to lead her to disobedience, and to lead her to death. We are never aware of that when temptation is crouching at our door. It seems like it's a one-off. It seems like it's separated from anything and everything else. And all we have to do is give consideration to the singular thing that we're being tempted to do. When, in fact, the door gets open to lead us astray, to lead us into disobedience, and to lead us into a separation in our fellowship with God. So without intending to do so, Eve is agreeing with Satan that God's generous provision isn't so generous after all. Very, very subtle, and I was surprised at the number of commentators who agreed that this is, an, this is in fact what is taking place, and it's a part of what is woven into the Hebrew word structure that we don't get so clearly as it is translated into English. So the second part of this revision that we see is to add... She adds to God's command. Verse 3, But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it. Now, is that what God said? That's not what God said at all. The focus is not on the provision of freely eating from every tree, but on the prohibition. And here, Eve adds to the command, You shall not eat from it or touch it. Now, it is possible that Eve's addition to the command was a sign of respect for what God had said. And it's a way of trying to add a protective layer to the sacredness or the seriousness of the command. But it's also likely that Eve is simply acknowledging the strictness of God's command. It's as if God said, don't eat from it, don't even touch it, because if you do, I'm going to zap you. Don't you dare. Don't even think about it. God is so harsh that if you even touch the tree or its fruit, if you even thinking about disobeying, He is going to bring down the hammer and He's just going to destroy you. Now I will say this, and I'm not going to delve into this very, very far. It's a rabbit trail that we don't want to go down. There are many, many, many 
fundamental exercises of Christianity that have done an incredible disservice to Christians by adding to the commands of God and making it tough. It's exactly what the Jews did. They added so much to the command of God that it just choked the people and it created an image and a perspective of God that was nowhere near accurate in what he was actually like. Now, while it seemed, excuse me, while it may seem like making the command more restrictive would add a layer of protection, God's commands stand on their own. They don't need our assistance. Now, this is dealt with by God all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It didn't make it into your outline. Sorry, it was a late edition. Very clearly, when God is giving to Moses the commands, when he's teaching, etc., he says in Deuteronomy 4.2, You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. God doesn't need our help in making the restrictions any more forceful or any more serious. His commands stand on their own to add to or to take away discredits the sovereign rule of God and it makes man, excuse me, it makes God dependent upon man's commentary for us to be able to understand and to obey it. So if we really believe that God is faithful and just, that He is trustworthy and loving, then His commands do not need our additions. They just need our devotion. Plain and simple. Now the third revision that we see here is Eve softens the command. Again, very, very subtle. Not very obvious to us in English. The last part of verse 3 says or you will die. Now, that's the NASB. There are many, many other translations that that say, lest you die. God said the result of eating from the forbidden tree was certain death. He said, you will surely die. Now, how clear is that? It's pretty clear, isn't it? When Eve recites it back and says, you will die, Eve's statement lacks the certainty of the consequence of disobedience. And while she does acknowledge death as a consequence, it appears that she is doing so with a hint of ambiguity attached to it, as if she is saying, it is possible that I will die if I eat the fruit from this tree. That is not at all what God said. This bit of doubt related to the certainty of death is emphasized next in the second part of Satan's strategy, and he appears to jump all over that hint of ambiguity that is stated here, and you will die. So the second part of Satan's strategy is outright denial. It's not enough to introduce the doubt. The next step is to outright deny what God has said. Satan's response to Eve's revision is filled with half-truths. The first of those half-truths is found right here in verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, and I'm going to add this, you surely will not die. God's crazy. He's off his rocker. He's blowing smoke. He's bluffing. This is a glaring contradiction to and a denial of God's very clear consequence 
for disobeying His command. Now, in the Hebrew, the word order is changed just a little bit, and it creates a very dramatic emphasis. So what we read in the English is, you surely will not die. What it says in the Hebrew, not you will surely die. Which is an outright challenge to what God had so clearly declared. This is a throwdown between Satan and God over what he has said and over what he's going to do. And this is birthing within Eve all kinds of feelings and ideas which aren't laid out for us, but very clearly are having a negative impact on her. It's as if Satan is saying, not only is God imposing incredible restrictions on you by not allowing you to eat from this one tree, but he's also lying to you because you're not going to die. Here, Satan is denying both the truthfulness of God's command and the reality of the doctrine of divine judgment. I will tell you, the road to hell is paved with the denial of the doctrine of divine judgment. Because after all, God is a God of love, right? God loves people. God doesn't want to destroy people. Everybody can get into heaven. All they have to do is just kind of be good. Maybe mass murderers don't qualify, but that's the exception. So, Satan is calling into question the truthfulness of God and the reality of divine judgment at the hands of of this sovereign God who rules over the creation he has made. So, the half-truth is found here in that physical death was not an immediate result and their spiritual death or separation from God would not be realized until a short time later. So what Satan is saying here is very simply this. God is a liar and he cannot be trusted. Now what, not, what is not being said, but what is being implied is, I'm telling you the truth and you can believe me. So this belief of Satan's is brought to the forefront in the third part of his strategy that you are not going to die. Let her see the accusation of deprival. So in this portion, we're going to see the second and the third half-truths that get laid out before Eve, and she's going to buy it all. These half-truths are couched in an attack on the character and on the motive of God. At the heart of Satan's deception is the idea that God does not have our best interest at heart. He does not know how to generously provide for us, and... He is threatened by our ability to ascend to a higher position. He wants to hold you back. He wants to keep you down. He wants to deprive you of being the best that you can be. Verse 5 simply says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there it is. God is holding you back. He's depriving you. He doesn't have your best interests in heart. He wants to keep you down. Doesn't So to have our eyes open means to gain knowledge or wisdom of something not previously possessed. Doesn't that sound like a good thing? 
To possess wisdom or knowledge that you didn't previously have? That sounds like a pretty good thing, doesn't it? To be like God, knowing good and evil, doesn't that sound like a good thing? Doesn't sound like that's so bad to me. But God does want us to be like Him in the sense that we share in His communicable attributes like holiness and love and mercy and truthfulness and other expressions of His righteousness. But what Satan tried to do and what he tempted Eve to try doing was to intrude into a realm that belongs to God alone, usurp His power, his sovereignty, and his right to be worshipped. This is what is behind Satan's strategy in convincing Eve that God is holding her back and depriving her of her best life. Now, we've already looked at this in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is knowledge that is reserved only for God because only God knows all things. And only God encapsulates absolute, complete holiness and purity who cannot be tempted by sin. And so this is something that is reserved only for God as is His sovereignty and His right to be worshipped. So notice how Satan characterized equality with God. Being equal with God is you will be like God knowing good and evil. This is the second dangerous half-truth. If they ate the fruit, they would indeed know evil, but not as God knows evil. God only knows it intellectually, but they are going to know it experientially. Isn't there a difference? Isn't there a difference in that? You better believe there is. What Satan held out to them as the road to fulfillment and truth was in reality a back alley to destruction. We read in Proverbs 14.12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's exactly right. Satan only describes what he thinks can be gained by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he never mentions once what will be lost by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So to have our eyes opened and to know good and evil, like God does, comes at the cost of disobedience. And this knowledge Satan speaks of is a knowledge that is reserved for God alone. When man gains this knowledge... It brings to him guilt and shame, the loss of innocence, the ability to pervert, twist, and manipulate exactly as Satan is now doing with Eve in the garden. So that is Satan's strategy. It is to doubt, it is to deny, and then it, it is to make then it is to make an accusation of deprival. That is always the strategy. So as this dialogue has concluded, Eve is left with the decision. The beginning part of verse six says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. 
This is the factor for the, for the decision that Eve is going to make. In a matter of seconds, Eve went from enjoying the vast beauty of God's creation, this immensely bountiful provision, to now questioning the very character and the very motivation of the Lord God. She completely disregarded God's singular command and entertained instead the shiny lure that God's adversary had dangled before her when she ate of the forbidden fruit. So in this process of making a decision, there are three components to it. Not new information. Three components. The first one is physical appetite. The fruit was good for food. Now, if that piece of fruit, whatever it was, um, legend is it's an apple, whatever that piece of fruit was, If that piece of fruit had worms crawling out of it, and had slime dripping from it, and if it was emitting a rancid odor, I can guarantee you Eve would go, Ooh, I'm not eating that. That's disgusting. But it was pleasant to the eye. The fruit was good for food. She was not legitimately hungry. She was surrounded by good food to eat. This instead speaks to an illicit physical appetite, something in this dialogue provoked within her a discontentment that is rooted now in a distrust of or a doubt about the Creator who had lovingly and graciously placed her in the garden. So their first part is this physical appetite. It appeared to be good for food. Let her be the emotional appetite. The fruit was pleasing to the eye. So the appearance of the, of the fruit was appealing. It connected with her desire for something good that was being kept from her. This is the root of covetousness, desiring something we do not have or something that we cannot have. There are countless stories of people who are incredibly wealthy and they look at the vast array of their collection of cars and they don't see the beauty of the cars they have. They see the one car that they don't yet possess. i got to have that. i got to get that. My life will be much, much better if I have that. It's exactly what happened to David when he gazed upon Bathsheba. He had all any king could ever want for. He saw the forbidden fruit and he desired it. And this is the covetousness that is now beginning to grow up within her. She saw that this was appealing to her eye. Let her see the intellectual appetite. The fruit would make one wise. Not only was it good for food and pleasant to the eye, it was going to make her wise. And after all, who doesn't want to be wise? So in her burgeoning sense of pride, acquiring wisdom would be a good thing. Acquiring wisdom would be a good thing, even if it meant disobeying the only command God had given. It's a trade. I'm going to trade wisdom for obedience. I'm going to trade pleasure for obedience. I'm going to trade independence for obedience. Just plug it. Plug it in. Plug in whatever appeals to this appetite that we have. And that's always going to be at the heart of the decision that we are forced to make in a moment of temptation. 
Satan planted the seed of doubt, made a bold statement of desire, of denial, and then sealed the deal with an accusation of deprival, and Eve bought the lie. The strategy of the adversary has not changed one iota from this account in the Garden of Eden. We would read in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. This is exactly what transpired in the Garden of Eden. This was the exact same strategy that Satan used when tempting Jesus after his 40 days of prayer and fasting in the wilderness. He appealed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But Eve lacked Jesus' commitment to obedience to the commands of God. So the result is here in the latter part of verse 6, she took from its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. A very simple description of a catastrophic action. Now we're not told where Adam came from, but he's there now. We don't know with any precision how long he'd been there. We don't know everything that he heard. What is apparent in the text that we don't necessarily see in the English is that the pronoun you is used in the plural every time it's used in verses 1 through 5, which gives an indication that Adam is in the presence of Eve and the serpent, although the serpent is speaking to Eve. We don't know what Adam heard, but there's very clearly not any protesting. There's not any pleading. There's no confrontation. So Adam is there. She eats. She gives to him and he eats. And everything is changed in an instant. The New Testament describes the sin... And in this, the description of, of Eve's sin in 1 Timothy 2.14, it was not Adam who was deceived, implying that it was Eve, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Her sin is a result of her being deceived. The implication here is that Adam wasn't deceived. He saw her eat and he deliberately ate anyway. He is, he is assigned the responsibility for the fall of all of mankind. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So there is a distinction, although there's not an excuse. Eve was deceived, but Adam just disregarded the command and ate the fruit anyway. So before the curse is announced in the verses to follow, we're left with this transitional description of verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. So now that Adam and Eve knew evil by personal experience in their sin... Their minds were opened to a whole new way of thinking. They were now susceptible to evil thoughts. They were drawn by evil desires. They no longer desired fellowship with God as they had before. Above all, they were conscious, excuse me, they were conscious of their own guilt and their own shame. Satan promised that their eyes would be opened, 
But this was not a positive enlightenment. This enlightenment was twisted and perverted and has brought to them guilt and shame. Sin instantly destroyed their innocence and they felt it very strongly. They were suddenly self-conscious about their guilt. They felt exposed, which is manifested in shame about their newly discovered nakedness. It is in this shame, and because of shame, they sew fig leaves together to cover themselves in an attempt to mask their guilt. This is the third half-truth. Their eyes were opened, and they were like God, yet they never understood what the cost was going to be. And although God knows intellectually what evil is, they now know it experientially in the, with the birth of shame and guilt being imposed upon them. And so they cover themselves with fig leaves. This is an appropriate response, as we're going to see in verse 21, when God will fashion coverings for them out of the animals of skin as a result of the sacrifice to atone for their sin. And that's a shocking revelation for them. But this covering is appropriate because of their shame and because of their guilt. Clothing is man's attempt at modesty, which is natural and normal and necessary. And what we say about those who prance around immodestly is they have no shame. They have no awareness. They have no self-consciousness of their shame. Adam and Eve had it in an instant. So they sewed for themselves coverings to try to mask the shame and the guilt that they experience. Well, paradise has been lost. God's single command has been disregarded. They are very soon, very quickly going to be expelled from the garden. They will be destined for a life of hardship and difficulty, a life that God did not desire for them or intend for them to have. But the silver lining in this event is that God is loving and gracious and merciful. He still desires for us to know Him. He still makes a way for us to know Him. He desires to show us the depth of His love. He is working even now to restore in us and through us that which was lost. And that is a redeemed relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. He knows our faults, our frailties, our failures. He is with us. He will never leave us, nor will He ever forsake us. He wants us to know Him. Didn't have to go that way. And as it turns out, Satan is the liar. Satan is the one who cannot be trusted. Satan is the one who casts doubt. Satan is the one who will cause us to deny. He is the one that will make us feel like God is depriving us. And His intention is always, always, always to deceive us into thinking that God does not love us, that God does not know what's best for us, and is not able to provide it. And we need to find a substitute outside of our relationship with Him to find our best life. Would you join me in prayer, please?